Hi, welcome to Tell Me. Today's conversation is with one of my favorites, Malcolm Gladwell. I'm a huge fan of Malcolm's. His interviews, his TED Talks, obviously his books, The Tipping Point, Blank, Outliers. Talking to Strangers is the last book of Malcolm's I read that I really, really loved. He has a new project out. It's an audiobook. It's called Miracle and Wonder, and it's Conversations with Paul Simon. I'm really looking forward to this. He's always such a creative thinker and makes me think a bit differently. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much. I'm so excited to speak with you. Oh, thank you. I am too. Do you like doing these interviews? You're such a thinker and a writer and, you know, recently now a big podcaster, but what is that like for you? Oh, no, it can be fun. You know, it's like these are conversations. Sometimes conversations are delightful. Sometimes they're a drag. I don't think it's the subject matter or the pretext. I think it's just the person you're talking to. Right, exactly. But what's interesting about you is that in your evolution— from writing to now podcasting, I talk a lot about like vibration and the way people's voices sound. Mm -hmm. And you have such a pleasant voice and such a welcoming vibration. And the other thing I love, you never know what you're going to write about, right? Your books are always different. But Miracle and Wonder, your conversations with Paul Simon, I love your love of music. And so obviously, yes, I had to go back and listen to Paul Simon music because mm-hmm. I don't listen to that normally. Wait, what do you listen to normally? Well, lately I've been listening to Adele mm-hmm. because she's got a new album coming out. I was lucky enough to go to the listening party a couple of weeks ago. So I've been listening to a lot of that. And I love hip-hop. Yeah. I love like 80s hip-hop. And then I love sort of like Vivaldi and classical music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But wait, so, so you've been discovering Paul Simon. Are you in love with him as much as I am now? Well, it's interesting because when I started listening to the Paul Simon music last night, it brought me back to very fond memories of my childhood, of which I don't have so many. But it was interesting, the feelings that it brought up in me of the more pleasant times with going for walks on Walden Pond with my sister Mm -hmm. and her now husband. And there is, you know, a melodic quality. And I love when he talks about his use of sounds. Yeah, his kind of encyclopedic understanding of sound. It's funny, I I had this experience a couple weeks ago, you know, Ron Howard, the director, has a book out, and I interviewed him on stage, he and his brother, The Strand in New York. And I had this moment when I was reading the book and when I was talking to them, I realized that Ron Howard and Paul Simon had something in common, which was Paul has an encyclopedic memory for sounds and organizes his world around. When we were talking to him, he'd mention some random tune from 1958, and he would say, you know, and in the middle of that, there's a little guitar sound, you know, and I remember that 30 years later, I used that in this song of mine. With Ron, he can remember conversations, characters, moments from his childhood that are, it's astonishing to me that anyone can have that. He almost has a kind of, he can replay his childhood 
day by day from memory. And I realized in both cases, it's why those two people have had such extraordinary long careers at the center of the zeitgeist, because they have a limitless store of experiences to draw on. And in Paul's case, it's a limitless library of music, of sound. In Ron's case, it's an unlimited library of character and moments. And, you know, it's like memory, because I have a terrible memory, I'm obsessed with memory and the role that it plays. And when I run across these people, these kinds of geniuses, and both of them are geniuses, and they have this gift, which I would never have connected so directly to their work. But now I realize, no, it's central. I have a terrible memory as well. It's interesting. Yesterday, I came across a picture on social media of a scene from early in, I think it was season three of Grey's Anatomy or season two. And it's the scene was me and Patrick Dempsey, who played my love interest, walking through the woods. And I had recently pitched something to the writer about me and a character walking through the woods. And I said, I have this idea for a scene. And she heard it and she said, okay, this you know sounds really great. I love this idea. And then I immediately got home. And this is another weird thing when you mention something mm. and then your phone hears it, right? And it pops up, which I could talk about that all day too. Um, anyway, my phone was on me when I pitched this scene of me walking on the woods. And then sure enough, three hours later, this image pops up on my phone of me walking through the woods with another character. And I didn't remember that scene at all. Yeah. And I text the writer and I said, how is it now, 16 years, 17 years later, I'm pitching ideas for scenes that I've already shot that I have no memory of? <laughs> And I said, is that a memory that I didn't remember I had? And I'm rehashing ideas. So it was really kind of wild. And then I said, you know, this tells me something. I don't know what it tells me, but it tells me something, that I've been doing something for too long, I suppose. <laughs> well, it, it says that you're normal, right? The people <laughs> who have these perfect memories are insanely rare. And they're the Paul Simons and Ron Howards of the world, right? The rest of us, you and me and others, we live with these radically imperfect memories. Now, a really interesting question is, do you want the perfect memory? Because if you had the perfect memory, you would have been robbed of the pleasure of coming up with this new idea for a scene of walking in the woods, right? Exactly. That's a great point. So when you write these books, specifically in Talking to Strangers, there's so much data in the books. Mm. Do you not remember any of that after you've written it? Is, is it all sort of just fall away? No, I remember... What I'm really bad at is, well, first of all, is faces. So I'm going to prepare you for this because it may happen. I am looking at you now. You are also a very familiar face for me from the television. If I am walking down the street and we pass each other, I will not recognize you. I have that face blindness problem. And it extends to other things. So I remember ideas and I remember broad themes, but any kind of detail I won't remember. I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, unless I really think about it. I don't remember some random thing someone told me. You know, a really good memory game is you ask someone to go back as far as they can remembering their birthday. Now, I have friends who are 40 years old and can do 35 birthdays. I probably can only do two. Me too. I don't even know if I could do I mean, two. Yeah, actually, I don't know. I mean, I'm so old. I've stopped celebrating my birthday. You know, you know, I have... <laughs> You, I'm sure, do too have friends who can tell you what they did on their sixth birthday. 
Oh, yeah. I'm always floored by it. I'm floored by when people have these kind of memory. Yeah. That facial recognition is a very real thing. I know someone who has it to a severe degree. Yeah. Like if I walked in the room and then left five minutes later, he won't recognize. Oh, yeah. Mine's not that bad, but... I do the thing that those of us with this condition do, which is recognize people by other things. So their shape, their clothes, the way they walk. If someone gains or loses weight, it really throws me off. And I won't remember them when I see them, if there's been any kind of dramatic change in, or if they're wearing, when I'm used to seeing someone in jeans and then they're all dressed up at a party, I'm lost. Because I just don't have no way of, uh, or haircuts are also deeply problematic for me. It's a weird, it is a strange, but I mean, I think of it in part as a blessing because a lot of what, you know, to use the Miracle and Wonder book for a moment. So we sit down with Paul Simon for 40 hours and we're talking about his career. And I'm a huge Paul Simon fan. I've been listening to his music my entire life. I've listened to an astonishing number of his songs many, many times. But the fact that my memory is poor allows me to experience them as fresh when they're not fresh. And that's a huge advantage if you're trying to communicate enthusiasm and excitement to an audience, if it's fresh to you, it seems fresh to them. And a lot of stuff is fresh to me because I just can't summon it otherwise from memory. And Paul, you know, he's interesting too because he has an amazing memory. And Ron Howard was the same way. But for some reason, they don't have the crippling side effect of that kind of memory. They're not jaded. So when, you know, when we were doing this book, Paul would sometimes play some of his songs Remember, he did a really beautiful version of America for us. A song he's probably played how many times? He's 78. He wrote that song when he was 25. He's played it thousands of times, I'm sure. And it was as if he was playing it for the first time. And I, I was amazed by that. I guess musicians are like actors in that sense, that if you did a play on Broadway, you, you might say the same lines every night for two years if it was successful. And you guys know how to make it seem fresh. I don't know how you do that. Well, I mean, theater is definitely not my thing. I don't like a live audience. I'm terrified of things like that. And because my memory is so bad, I would never be able to oh, remember too. lines yeah. and feel confident enough to do theater. Wait, 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 wait. I want to pause on something you said. You don't like a live audience? Mm-mm. Why not? You're an actor. <laughs> I know. It's weird. It's like I almost don't like attention. I'm fine with attention from afar. Clearly, I wanted attention. Clearly, I pursued mm. a career in entertainment. So it wouldn't be truthful to say that I didn't want an audience. Of course I did. But I think a live audience is almost too much attention. It's the attention. You feel scrutinized? What is it that's making you feel? I'm sure. I'm sure it's a lack of confidence. I'm sure it's, am I going to say the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. I think also, you know, maybe for women, sometimes it's this history of being criticized so often for things. You know, it's so easy to be criticized for things you wear or your weight or your looks. So I think that that probably subconsciously plays in even at, you know, 50 years old and having done this for a long time, 25 years now. But, you know, something that you said makes me think of when you say your lack of memory allows you to have the experience all over again. It's a very positive way to look at it. I talk a lot about positivity. And I think that it's really, honestly, the key to everything. And I think if I were inherently, and it's a practice, I work on it every day. I think inherently, if I were a more positive person, I would spin it like I spin it for my kids. And my kids say, I'm nervous. It's the first day of school. My stomach's in knots. I say, no, you're excited. You're not nervous. You're excited. Yeah. 
And so it's just to reframe thoughts in a positive way, Mm -hmm. I think, is the difference. But yeah, no, live audiences aren't my thing. (laughs) But now now you make me think that you should experiment. Why not? Well, I am. Listen, I'm doing this podcast. Listen, for me to put myself out there Uh and sit in front of a microphone, Malcolm, it's a big deal for me. There's a part of me that's quite shy. Mm -hmm. And for me to sit in front of a microphone and just have sort of unscripted conversations with people is a scary idea to me. (laughs) But I'm doing it. So I didn't know whether I would like public speaking, for example. I'd never do theater, but obviously I'm not an actor. But And then I started to do it and I found that I really do like it. And one of the reasons I like it is that contrary to expectation, audiences are incredibly generous. In a group, people are capable of, they'll go to extremes, they won't go individually. So you can be way nastier in a group than you would be by yourself, but you can also be much more generous in a group. Something will be funny to you in a group that would never be funny to you if it was told to you one-on-one. When I'm giving a talk to a group, that freedom is exhilarating. It's like once you've won them over, they're with you. They'll sit with you through a bad stretch. They'll laugh at something that's really not that funny, but they understand its intention is to be funny, and that's good enough. And then you learn there's certain people who, if you win them over, you win over the whole group, right? If you win the women over, you'll win the men. You sort of get good at sort of understanding, well, who should I be aiming my energy at. And it's just really, I mean, I've been doing it for years and I find it really, really interesting and fun. I mean, kind of, I did my first live talk after, you know, a year and a half of COVID. It was all Zoom, you know, and I did one in person last week and it was so much fun. Oh my God, it was great. What did you talk about? I listened to your TED talk when you talked about the spaghetti sauce and I thought you did have them. There were moments there where like you did absolutely have them. They were really delighted by your musings on extra chunky garden variety. (laughs) So where did you speak last week? I spoke in Austin, Texas at a convention of neurosurgeons. (gasps) Oh, Ooh. And what did you talk about? I told them a story about a guy. I actually wrote about him in one of my books, about a guy named Emil Freireich, who was the guy who cured childhood leukemia, which in the 50s and 60s was one of, well, up through, for all of human history, up through that period, was the thing you were most scared of as a parent because it had a 100% mortality rate and your kid died the most horrible death. They'd get a cold, then a fever, and they'd be dead in six weeks. And the last six weeks of their life would be as horrendous an experience as a human being could possibly go through. And he cured it. And he cured it because he was such a badass. And so I met him. He died in February at 94. He grew up on the streets of Chicago in the Depression. I think his dad committed suicide and his mother, something was very weird about his mother. He was just abandoned, basically. And he was this deeply damaged guy who took all of his damage and channeled it into something beautiful and important and sublime. And it took me a long time to realize the first time I talked to him was on the phone and I I wanted to hang up. I thought this is a horrible, a genuinely horrible person. And then the second time I talked to him, it was in person. And I realized, oh, I misread him, that he's damaged. But all of that, what I was reading is as kind of um, anger and bile and negativity. It was none of those things. It was just his kind of superhuman force. And he took all of that and he said, 
Because when he decided to cure childhood leukemia, everyone thought that he was a monster and that the idea he had was horrific. He invents combination chemotherapy. He took four toxic drugs. He said, I'm going to take four toxic drugs. I'm going to give them to these kids at the highest possible dose. I'm going to bring them to the brink of death. I'm going to nurse them and keep them alive. I'm going to destroy every cancer cell I can. And in the course of that, destroy their immune system. They're going to have fevers of 106. I'm going to bring them to the brink of death. I'm going to nurse them back to life. And then I'm going to do it again a month later. And then I'm going to do it again a month after that. And I'm going to do it for a year and a half until I've destroyed every last cancer cell in their body. And then they're going to be healthy again. And he had no clue that it was going to work. And everyone in the world thought he was a Nazi doctor. No one would help him. And he did it all by himself. But he was so fierce and angry and stubborn and... He's a giant, six foot four, 250. He basically turned to everyone at, he was at NIH, turned to every one of his peers and said, fuck you, I'll show you. But when he went to meetings to tell him what he was trying to do, people would heckle him. Nobody would work with him. He did it all by himself. He had one guy, one guy who believed in him, his best friend. Everyone else, grad students were instructed to shun him because what he was doing was unspeakable. He invents what is now commonplace in the treatment of cancer, which is using many drugs in combination repeatedly, is a technique that he essentially invents. And at the time he invents it, no one thinks it's going to work. That's the, Now we all accept it, but he's the pioneer. And my argument to these surgeons was that pioneers have to be that way. They have to be people who are capable of giving their middle finger to their critics, right? Right. If he wasn't someone with that chip on his shoulder, if he wasn't this angry, overwhelming force, he would have given up and we wouldn't have cured childhood leukemia. So it's like what I was responding to the first time I talked to him when I hated him was in fact his superpower. That was the turn for me. I was like, oh, I got him all wrong. He offended me. And then I realized, oh, that's not the point here. <laughs> the, point, the point is that he had to be that way. Right. That's why he is mm -hmm. who he is. Yeah. Our experiences do enable us to become who we are. Without them, we'd be someone different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's absolutely the case. Yeah. It's interesting in talking to strangers how you reference actors and you talk about friends and people's facial recognitions. I have to say, you know, I had a moment when I read the chapter on, for anyone who hasn't read Talking to Strangers, get Miracle and Wonder Conversations with Paul Simon first, obviously, but then go back and read Talking to Strangers because it's a complete game changer. I felt so incredibly sad when I read the chapter on Amanda Knox and I thought, well, that was me because I saw that woman walk into a courtroom and I made an instant judgment about her. And for those of you who don't know, Talking to Strangers is Malcolm's last book, Before Miracle and Wonder, where he talks about how we judge people and how people judge people and what we see when we look at people and what thoughts or emotions are evoked from how we judge them. And based on facial recognition first, before they ever even open their mouth, I hope that's an accurate mm. description oh, yeah. of the book. Yeah, yeah. And the chapter on Amanda Knox, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm a horrible person. I judged this poor woman who was completely innocent. But of course, I thought, why is she walking into the courtroom? And I would look terrified. I would be crying. I would think, oh my goodness, I'm in a foreign country and I'm being accused of the worst thing you can be accused of. I would be a, a physical wreck. And she looked composed. And she sort of waved at her boyfriend. And I made an instant judgment based on her. Mm -hmm. But you should give yourself some... So you are in a profession that requires you to be highly emotionally responsive to the people you're interacting with. That's very rare. 
you know, most of us are not required to do that for a living. You are. If you were not that, you wouldn't be a successful actor. After your first audition, they would have said, what is she doing? She doesn't know how to do it, you know? So those things are of heightened importance to you. And you spent 25 years basically training that muscle, that responsive reactive muscle. That makes you highly unusual. And then to another chapter where you talk about that monster, Larry Nasser. I really don't even want to call him a doctor because doctors take an oath to do no harm. So I'm going to strip him of that title for the purposes of this conversation. But before he was exposed, people trusted him based on the fact that he was a doctor, right? Parents were unable to see signs of his abhorrent behavior because he had the label doctor. Mm -hmm. That moment in talking to students where I talk about, you know, just those who haven't read it, it's a this is the doctor who sexually abused young female gymnasts who he was supposed to be treating. And this is at Michigan State. He was actually the team doctor for the U.S. gymnastics squad. And one of the things I, I describe is the mothers of these children who were abused would talk about their experiences. In one case, the mother was in the room while Larry Nasser was inappropriately touching her daughter. And she was herself a doctor, by the way. She was looking at it, but she couldn't see it. And of course, you can imagine how consumed with guilt she would be. But my point was that was a fundamentally human response that we're trusting engines. And we are particularly, we're dealing with someone, if you've already decided to place the most important thing in your life, your daughter, in the hands of a doctor in order to heal her so that she can do the thing that she loves, you're already so far down the trusting road. It's really, really hard to take a U-turn and jump to this extraordinary conclusion that actually this guy's a monster, right? These things accumulate. We, I trust you a little bit at first and then a little bit more and more and more. And you're so deep into the trusting game at that point, as she was, that she, she literally couldn't see what was happening. And I, I thought it was important to write about that in part because I wanted to rescue that mother from the feeling that she had done something terrible and to explain to her that, no, what she did is what we do as a species. We trust that's how we've gotten this far. But the side effect of that is every now and again, our trust will be betrayed. And that's, there's almost no way around that fact. We have to kind of learn to live with that fact or at least be forgiving of ourselves and of others when that betrayal happens. Yeah, that's an important lesson to be forgiving of yourself when the betrayal happens. I think that another component is that people double down Sometimes when people are wrong or they've trusted someone who turns out not to be who they thought, as in the case of like Madoff, which is also a chapter in the book, people will double down and say, you know, the more people question, why would you trust him? There's something off about those numbers. There's something that just doesn't seem right. I interviewed Maria Konnikova. Oh, yeah. She wrote a book called The Biggest Bluff. Yeah. And she talked about the doubling down of, of you know, once someone's caught or once someone has been exposed as a liar, they just double down and people dig their heels in more. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very powerful phenomenon. Which I think is more relevant to politics today even though people are following someone who's a bad person, a bad guy, they just stick to it even more fiercely. Mm -hmm. It's just the inability to accept that they're wrong or they made a bad judgment call, which is a different emotion entirely than forgiving yourself, you know, which is something, you know, for a mother to forgive herself is an incredibly hard task, mm -hmm. you know, those poor parents. This reminds me of, to bring the conversation back to Paul Simon, um, so we sit down with him for 40 hours 
and talk about all manner of things under the sun, and he plays and things. And as I would drive from my house upstate, and it would be in two hours, so I would listen to all his music on the way. And I fell in love all over again with a song of his called Tenderness, the chorus of which is, it's about a man and his wife, and something has happened between them, and he's feeling she has turned on him in some way. And he asks for some tenderness beneath your honesty. And I became convinced that that song was, I told Paul this, I said, that's the quintessential Paul Simon song. That is the song that sums up your project in the world, because so much of what you do is asking for some tenderness beneath the honesty. In other words, what you don't want, you don't want dishonesty. If someone is angry with him, fine, be angry. Tell me what I've done wrong. Be honest with me about the ways in which I have failed you. But I just, can you have a little bit of tenderness that you attach to that? right? And it's the lack of that little bit of tenderness that brought him pain in the world. And this song is so beautiful, but it applies to what we're talking about, is that, it does. you know, we don't want betrayal, we want honesty. And we don't want people to lie to us, even if they're trying to make us feel better in some, you know, short-sighted sense. No, we want the truth. We want the truth wrapped in that little bit of tenderness. It is such an incredibly exquisite and moving song. If I could sing, I would sing it for you now, but I can't sing. And it was a lovely moment because Paul has written so much brilliant music. He's been a relevant musician in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and aughts, right? It's insane how much incredible music he's created. That he has, I think when you've been that productive, you you lose sight of just how extraordinary some of your work is. And he hadn't thought about that. I'm sure he hadn't thought about this song in years. He says he never plays it. He thought it was a kind of throwaway song. And then we're in the middle of like this extended conversation. And I say to him, Paul, this song that you don't care about, that you think is a throwaway, that you've never sung in a concert, I think it's the quintessential Paul Simon song. It was so funny because I think at first he was like, you know, please, how could you say that? Like, but then he came around and I think he began to, he sort of was like, wait a minute. Maybe it kind of is. Maybe that is what I want from the world is a little tenderness, you know, with people's honesty. It was just lovely. We had so many of those moments where both of us were getting a kind of gift from the other that we were getting the gift of hanging out with a genius. And he was getting the gift of two other people helping him re-explore his own work, which is a gift, right? If you're someone who's been immersed in your own work for 50 years, 60 years, to have some outsiders come along and say that song that you never thought about is actually kind of genius. Here's why I think it's genius, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you do best and, and why you're such an important cultural icon is because you do make us think about things differently. And it's interesting that for a song to be so impactful to so many others didn't impact him. He didn't want to revisit it. He didn't yeah. sing it. Yeah. Did he tell you the story of why he wrote it or what was the inspiration behind the song? It was an argument with his wife, then wife. Mm. How many times was he married? I think he's been married twice. I think this is his, but I think, it's either wife or girlfriend, I've forgotten. The relationship was in trouble. And it was that quality in her, I think, that he was wrestling with, which was she was honest without, without any tenderness attached to it. And I think because he's... You know, he's uh, incredibly sensitive. You have to be to be an artist of that level. There's something about him that feels every feeling and hears every word. And you can't create beautiful music for 50 years if you're insensitive, can you? 
but now take those same qualities and put them in the context of a intimate relationship. And you can see that it's going to be hard, right? I often think that people in your profession and in creative professions, music, acting, fiction writing in particular, not all writing, it is like the thing that you do nine to five complicates your personal life. I don't mean that it makes it impossible, but if you're going to feel for a living, then an intimate relationship, personal relationship with someone is a much higher stakes operation than if you're someone who can turn that stuff off or doesn't have to feel all day long, you know? For sure. Yeah, I would agree with you. I also think when you listen to music of people who have had a career for 20, 30 years, you know, what that must be like to go back and listen to it and have a walk down memory lane and think of... Mm-hmm this person or that person who I wrote this song because of, you know, I've never really gone back and watched my show. And it's been, you know, almost two decades now. And I'm kind of afraid. Eventually I will because I have a 12-year-old and all of her friends are watching it. I still think she's too young. Wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I love this so much. So <laughs> you, first of all, so your daughter is in this unusual position of all of her friends watching you <laughs> and she can't watch you. No, because, no, because... It's a little too sexual. Even though it was network TV, there was a lot of stuff happening, you know? It was a pretty racy network show for the time. Yeah. So, you know, and I have friends that their daughters are watching it, so, you know, they're talking to me about it, so they're reminding me, and, I, you know, I know what we did. But I'm kind of terrified, and I hope my lack of memory <laughs> is in full effect when I go back and watch it because I think that some stuff I don't want to remember. Wait, um, do you, but are you sure it's racy or is your memory of it, you could have distorted it in your mind. I mean, I have some pretty, no, I definitely, I mean, listen, there's one scene for sure where a character, not me, had like sex with a ghost, had oral sex with a ghost. Oh so, are you serious? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, like, I just don't feel like having that conversation with my 12-year-old, you know? We talk about a lot of things, but that's You're going to draw the line. Yeah, thing. I can see that. I can yeah. see that. <laughs> um, she asks me all the time, like, now can we watch the show? So she's not afraid to ask me, but she also is amazing in the way that she won't sneak and watch it. She's just, like, dying to watch it with me. Yeah. But it's such a piece of my life. I don't know. I'm I'm a bit anxious about going back through it. And I think that when you walk back through your life, maybe this is why it's great that we can't remember a lot of things because some things we don't <laughs> we don't need to remember. Yeah. Does Paul Simon have an amazing memory for the events that sort of inspired the songs? I think he does. I mean, it, there was almost never a case where we would ask him a question and he would say I don't remember. I don't even I don't remember him saying I don't remember now. Of course I don't remember anything, but no, I think he does. I think it's part of that sensitivity thing. I mean, part of what gives you a good memory to use that, in this sense, he is really like Ron Howard. You get a similar vibe from the two of them, which is they are so, um, you know, they've turned themselves on to the world. So they're just open. They hear everything and listen to everything. And, you know, Ron, I've known Ron for quite a while. And he is, in this sense, so much like Paul in that they are the least famous, famous people that you've ever met. They have none of that kind of on one hand, rock star, on the other hand, Hollywood star kind of vibe to them, which is the key to their longevity, right? Because the minute you think you're a rock star, you've closed yourself off. Mm-hmm. Or the minute you have an entourage and you arrive with, you're no longer living in the world. And if you no longer live in the world and you're Ron Howard, how can you make a movie that 20 million people will want to watch? Can't. You're in a bubble now. He's not in a bubble. You know, he's he's has still stayed normal. And same with Paul. Paul's the 
I don't know many rock stars, but there's just no rock star in them. I completely agree. The minute you start living like you're famous, it's over. Yeah. The minute you live like fame is an actual real breathing thing that is real, you're screwed. Particularly if you're trying to do creative work that appeals to a popular audience. You can't do it if you are not yourself living in the world of the people you're trying to reach. I don't mean directly in the world, because obviously you're going to live in a nicer house and you're going to have, you know, a fancy car or whatever, and a lot more money in the bank. But I mean, I mean, open to the experiences and interactions of those kinds of people. Unjaded, as you said before. Yeah. Did you always want to interview him? Like, you've been a fan of his music forever. So was this book in your head for a long time and you were just waiting for the right time or...? You know, we started, me and my, one of my best friends, Jacob Weisberg, started this company, Pushkin Industries, to do cool things in audio because we were convinced and remain convinced that audio is the most interesting and innovative and fastest growing part of the kind of media landscape. And one of the things we were thinking about is, is there a way to kind of reinvent audiobooks? And the natural subject for an audiobook is a musician because they are themselves in the audio business, right? Why would you want to read about a musician? And then the next question was, well, who's the right... We wanted to do a kind of test run. And the next question was, where's the right place to start? And I talked to Jody Gerson at Universal. I know Jody. Do you know Jody? I do, yeah, sure. My husband are really good Is friends. that right? Oh, yeah. love Jody. Jody's fantastic. I met Jody at a conference, totally hit it off. Went to see her in LA. Said, okay, Jody, this is what I want to do. Who should I do it with? She goes, you should do it with Paul Simon. Here's the number of his manager. And I had lunch with Paul Simon, like, you know, whatever, two weeks later. And Jody's feeling was correct that, one, he's really interesting. So he, you can talk to him. For Two, he's an extraordinary musician. So you have something to talk about, right? And three, he'd be up for it because he's open. You know, he's game for doing something unusual. All of her instincts were correct. It's why, you know, she's a incredibly powerful, successful person because she has good instincts. <laughs> um, so... Yeah. Uh, that's how it came about. You know, I would have always thought I'd want to do him, but I would never have known how to get to him or it would never have occurred to me he would say yes. And I think she was crucial to that process. I really want to listen to your interview with Diane Warren also. I know Diane Warren too, and she's wild. Mm -hmm. You know, you said a word which I love, which you've spoken about before, which is reinvention. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to reinvent the audiobook, which is a brilliant idea. I have the most fantastic painting in my living room. It's deep, deep, deep blood red. And it was done by a French woman by the name of Claire Fontaine. It's a series of conversations between Mark Jacobs and Richard Prince. Mm -hmm. When Mark Jacobs took over the House of Vuitton, he was terrified and he said, what do I do? How do I take something so classic as Vuitton and sort of remake it? And they had this series of conversations and they printed these conversations. And then this artist took these conversations and printed them on canvases. I chose the red, not only because the red is such a good red, but I loved the words. And what Richard Prince said was, reinvention is invention. He talks about Duchamp's Mona Lisa mm. and the famous painting with the mustache on the Mona Lisa. And to give reinvention as much credit as we give invention, mm -hmm. because it is just as important. Mm -hmm. Reinvention is invention, is what the final line in the painting is. I think that it's a really important thing to remember. There's no such thing as doing something that's already been done. There's always a way to rethink it. Yeah. You know, you reinvent something because there was something of value there to begin with, right? You know, it, reinvention is as much an act of restoration as it is of transformation. 
you're explicitly building on what has come before, which is what I find so compelling about that process. With the Paul Simon book, we're doing a new way of appreciating a musical artist, which is let's sit down with someone who's interesting, have a conversation, have him play music, and then make an argument, write an argument essentially about what we're hearing. But it it doesn't work without Paul Simon, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. That's a reinvention of the form, but it requires a very traditional thing at the center, which is the subject who is willing to be interviewed in a very traditional way, right? So you start by doing something the way it's always been done. And that gives you the freedom to kind of, you know, the most fun thing that we did in the book was we just did all these cameos. So we said to Paul, which of your peers would be interesting to talk to about you? Now, turns out that Paul's very shy. No one does a worse job of banging his own drum. So we had to kind of like, come on, Paul, <laughs> who are your friends who won't? So he gave us a couple, Sting. It's like, well, I did something with Sting once. Sting turns out to be so much fun. I do a Zoom with Sting. Sting's in a chateau in Paris somewhere. Of course he is. Exactly. Of course he is. <laughs> Sting. Where else would he be? And then, so I've been doing interviewing people for 30 years. About 10 seconds into this interview with Sting, I realized, oh, I am nervous in a way I have never been in my entire life. You know, I'm not a huge Sting fan. I mean, I like their music. I'm not like a Sting fanatic. But he's such a rock star. He's so insanely handsome, and he's so insanely smart, and he just radiates charisma, intelligence, thoughtfulness, and he starts to tell a story, and he turns out he's the best storyteller ever, and I make the mistake halfway through the story. I'm like, so I'm just sitting there. I'm like, oh my God, this is like an amazing experience. I'm totally nervous. And I I just blurt something out, and he goes, puts up his finger, he goes, uh, uh, and then he goes back to telling his story. It was like, Malcolm, you're in the hands of a master here. You don't need to like prompt me. I know what I'm doing. He tells a perfect, moving, the whole thing was just amazing. It was just masterful. And we did like six or seven of those with famous musicians and and they were so much fun. But again, you know, you start with the traditional interview with Paul Simon and then that allows you to call up like Joan Baez. I call it Joan Baez, who is like, She's so in, hilariously, insanely charming. It's like, I wanted to like, can we just hang out for a couple of weeks? Can I move into your guest house and we can just like have breakfast every morning? Because she's just one of those, she's just radiated warmth and different from the Sting experience. I couldn't, I'd be too terrified to spend anything longer than 10 minutes with Sting. And so we did like all of these, got these little snapshots of all of these. Herbie Hancock was, we did Herbie Hancock because they're both musical like, they worked together once and just fell in love with each other. And he was, again, like a whole nother experience. So Herbie Hancock is famous. This is what was fun about him. He decides to do a cover of a Paul Simon song. And he's such an accomplished musician and so exacting and so brilliant that he's famous for asking people to do things that they can't do, that are too hard, that are just too out there, that only he can do that, right? And people always like say, you know, I'm sorry, Herbie, you know, I'm not good enough to do that, right? That's the, what they're all saying. So Herbie Hancock says, well, I start to work with Paul, and Paul asked me to do something, and I can't do it. It's like, <laughs> Paul out Herbie Hancocked, Herbie Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love the joy of Herbie Hancock finding someone who's basically him on steroids at last. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I've met my match. A lifetime in music of always being the smartest person in the room. And then finally he's like, oh, I bet someone as good as me. 
And like, it just made him so happy to know that there was like someone out there who was, you know, could match him step for step. I just thought that was, I'm sure actors must have that experience of when you finally work with someone who's like really, really, really good. And it just must bring you so much happiness to be in the hands of like a true genius. Yeah, it's a vibration. It's a vibration. You know, I'm sure in the same way that you felt Sting's vibration and his frequency. You know who I think would be great too? All right, so you're going to do more of these? Hope so, yes. We definitely have other ones. We're doing one right now with Steve Martin. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was going to be amazing. I can't wait for that one. What about Stevie Wonder? I would love to do Stevie Wonder. We have someone in mind for that, what we think would be amazing. But uh, I think it's a question of, you know, getting to yes with super, super, super famous people is often difficult. Right. That's one we have in mind. Um, I think that the possibilities are limitless. I think comedians and musicians are the two perfect people for this kind of book, where people who are so kind of thoughtful about what they're saying and how they say it and who are going to be playful with sound, both in different ways. But, you know, comedy and music are both advanced play with sound. That's what it is, right? A comedian is, it's not so much the meaning of their words, but it's the way that they're presenting words in ways to you that trigger emotion. That's what a comedian's doing. It's true. It's true. And it must be interesting for someone like Paul Simon and, and someone who's lived through all these cultural decades and to see our evolution and to see the way media has changed and the way art is received. Mm -hmm. It's all quite intense yeah. at the moment yeah. for artists. Yeah. No, I do think that's true. Well, Malcolm, I really appreciate your time. And I absolutely loved talking to you. And I'm a huge fan. And I think... Oh. What you do is so important, and I'm really grateful you're on this planet. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> this is a real delight, and I hope we do it again someday. I would love to. Have a great weekend, Malcolm. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.